Well, it's good to be back with you and our time in the Word. If you have little ones through grade four and you'd like them to be in children's church, they can be dismissed at this time. For the rest of you, turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Back this morning, continuing series, God's Plan for a Healthy Church, a study through the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. We're in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 5, Confidence in the Future, the title for this message section here, particularly in chapter 5. And it's good to be back together after a few weeks off. A number of fun things occurred and uh, uh, important things in sending Eli and Jess to the field. We're so grateful that they made it safely and that they've had uh, a good transition so far as they look for housing, keep them in prayer. As they uh, look for a place that the Lord would have them live for the two years they're there, and for a vehicle, for transportation. So those are prayer, uh, prayer topics you can seek the Lord about on a regular basis. I pray that you'll do that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, there's a passage that we quote often. It, it goes like this, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It's really the reason why we do what we do here. If you've been through the Be the Church class, which is coming up again fairly soon, you know that um, that's why we emphasize the daily reading of the Word. Uh, That's also the reason why we emphasize a verse-by-verse, exegetical, expository style of teaching, uh, because this is what the Word was designed for us to do. And the benefits are very rich. First, it's, it's so that we can be adequate. That's the word for complete. And then the word equipped, which is the perfect passive exartizo. That's thoroughly furnished. Perfect passive means the Lord is equipping us in such a way. It's a, it's a word that was used for the equipping of ships for a long journey. So they were going to pass over a large sea and and come to rest in a foreign land with everything that they would need. That's the word that that's used there. Um, so thoroughly equipped for every good work, and that just means the business, uh, any employment, anything that with which we are occupied, it's very broad. It takes in anything you might undertake to do. It's the sum of the business of your life. That's, that's what it is. It's any task. Thoroughly equipped for any task. So the Lord, then, you can catch this, the Lord prepares us through his word for every circumstance. That's the reason why we encourage you to be in the Word each day. You can go and find a trifold in the, at the welcome table where you can do that together. It, you can do it through version and, and pick a, a, a reading plan that will take you through the Word of God. Whatever it is that works for you in your busy life, use that plan and be in the Word each day. It is His desire to, to uh, teach you, reprove you, correct you, and train you in righteousness. It's what I do here. And so when we come together, of course, it just is a continuation of what you've been doing all along, all through the week. So we just do that corporately, what you've been doing all week. And so then that helps us to know what the Lord's will is. It helps us to hold up the Holy Standard. It helps us to be encouraged by His promises. All those things are a part of that daily time in the Word. And through that time in the Word and through the time together corporately, both in your Sunday school classes and together here in Bible studies midweek, we're thoroughly equipped, we're prepared for, thoroughly furnished for every task in life. So it would seem not not a minor thing that we spend time there. So it's our encouragement to continue to, 
to, to uh, encourage you to do that. Now, we're going to read our passage today in its entirety. It's been a while since we've been in this passage, so I want to do that and allow the Holy Spirit to work. So turn in your copy of God's Word wherever you are. If you, I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. You know this because uh, I teach from there, but you can, and you can find that hard copy around you in the chairs, or just use the one that you memorize and read each day, and that will be fine. I'll give you verse cues. We'll stay together. So I'm going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. For we know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 2. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Verse 3. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, verse 4. While we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal may be, will be swallowed up by life. Verse 5, now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Verse 6, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Verse 9, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Verse 12, we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it's for you. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Verse 15, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Verse 16, therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Verse 18, now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, verse 19, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's stop right there. Now, as we've worked our way through that passage and we left off several weeks ago, we have begun to see some confidence there for Paul as he expresses his own heart to the church. And we've seen that difference between First and Second Corinthians where Paul moves away from more of an accusatory correction type of uh, interaction with the church, answering questions and then correcting those things, to revealing his own heart and how he has got uh, made his way through life and been able to manage the things that life has uh, brought to his plate and the things that unbelievers have done to him, those that are part of his countrymen, all those kinds of things. And if you uh, need to catch up, you can go back online and you can catch those things. But we've begun to see some confidence. And, and at the first stop here, really the first eight verses, we see 
uh, a confidence in death. And that's where we are now. We're going to see that it also includes a confidence in final judgment, which you saw that just a second ago, that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to see a confidence in conscience. So at the end of your life, as you look back over all that you've done, you'll have a confidence that you have done exactly what the Lord has wanted you to do. And that certainly is in our hearts, right? When we get to the before, stand before the Lord, we want to look back over and have a good conscience and say, okay, I, dis, I did discharge those things the Lord has told me to do in a way that he's told me to do it. And then we see a confidence in our future transformation, and then finally a confidence in our duties, the things that we're to do here while we're on the earth. And so that's, the, that's how we're going to work through the passage. Those are the handholds, if you will. So we see all those things, and, uh, and in dealing really with our confidence in the future, we look at verse 1. Paul starts out by saying, For we know that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And that statement really draws every believer right in. The same promise, he says, for we know, Paul just concludes you, this is something that we, uh, is common knowledge, we know this. It also reveals really a preference list for Paul. We looked at this last time. Uh, first preference for Paul is, I'd like to live until Jesus comes. And that's the idea expressed in the word if, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our body, is torn down. If it isn't torn down, and I'm alive, then the rapture, and the sooner the better, and like we said, perhaps that's the option all of us would like to have in first place. Paul says, if it's torn down, perhaps it won't be, perhaps I'll be alive, and if that's the case, the sooner the better. And there'll be a whole generation of people that will have this option. The second preference for Paul seems to be death. Paul says, uh, and that's the general idea, I think, of the first eight verses, an obituary will mark uh, the end of this temporary life on earth for most people. We know this. And so, but what Paul would like to say would be, you know, if I can't be alive at the rapture, then I'd prefer to die, and the sooner the better, because I want to be with Jesus. And, and that really seems to be the intent of the first uh, verses 8, really, for us, if we, we just read that, verse 8, where he says, uh, uh, he says, in verse 8, he says, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So that's, Paul, that's Paul's second preference. If he can't be, at home, can't be alive during the rapture, then he'd prefer to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. It certainly is the idea of Philippians 1.23. I'm hard-pressed, Paul says, uh, from both directions, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far very much better. So he'd love to be with Christ, uh, yet to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So just obviously, uh, Paul then would say that I would love to go ahead and be with the Lord. But Paul's third preference would have been, uh, I need to live. And perhaps, I, and I asked you last time, a couple of weeks ago, to kind of align your own preferences with the way that we see Scripture kind of fleshing out those preferences. I'd like to be alive at the rapture and taken by the Lord, and the sooner the better. Or if, if I can't be taken at the rapture, then I'd like to just be with the Lord, and the sooner the better. And then Paul's final preference would be, I have to live. In other words, Paul would say, I'm fine with finishing out my race with martyrdom so I can be with the Lord, but being alive for right now is better for the church, so I'll stay as long as the Lord allows me to stay. And I think we can relate to that one as well, can't we? We, we would like, we'd long for our loved ones to remain on in the flesh because it's necessary and it's desirous and it meets needs and it and fulfills the longing of the flesh and all those things. We understand that. So there's Paul's three preferences, perhaps, as he kind of lays them out throughout the New Testament. But I think most of us can relate to Paul in that first preference. He wanted to be alive until Jesus came. And as I told you, you know, that um, really prompted a number of questions that we only partially dealt with last time, so we're going to deal with the rest of them today. But 
Uh, he wanted to be alive until Jesus came, and that, and that takes us into some doctrine, and, and we looked at that last time. It's very closely connected with our passage. It's a parallel passage that helps us understand more about this, uh, the confidence in death, and that parallel passage is in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll put it on the screen behind me, but you can look there too if you'd like. But 1 Corinthians 15, 50, Paul says this, and I'm going to review this just quickly because there are a few points we didn't get to last time, and so if you missed any of this, you can go online and you can uh, catch up with all of the supporting passages that we added here um, but we, we saw Paul's carried along to say this. He says, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We just got through saying that, uh, seeing what, seeing what Paul said there, really basically the same thing in second Corinthians five, Paul affirms that God wants you to know some things about your future resurrection. And the Holy spirit starts with this, that there's a transformation coming. It's not a surprise to us. Paul says, you know, if this tent is torn down, uh, I have a home in heaven. Uh, not made with hands. So we understand that this is a, a transitory body. This is a transitory place. But Paul says, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And Paul just affirms there's a transformation coming. And this really adds to our confidence for the future. This is really Paul's intent here in Second Corinthians 5 for us to be confident in the future, particularly confident in death. And we understand believers cannot live in the eternal state in the present body, this flesh and blood, this temporary tent. And so we, we've got to be different to dwell in that domain. So whether we go in the rapture or we die here and this tent is torn down, which is a passage in 2 Corinthians 5.1, uh, there is something else for us. And we have to be different in order to, he says, uh, perishable does not inherit the kingdom of God. So we have to be different in order to get there. So, or in our passage, it, it defines the address. We have a home eternal in the heavens. So one way or another, inherit the kingdom of God, eternal in the heavens, speaking of the same place. We can't live in what we're in now there. And then Paul just affirms that. He says, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So neither does from our passage, does the tent get packed up and reset up at a heavenly address. The tent is temporary. It's for a temporary place. It's fit for the flesh. It's fit for the world, but it's not fit for the eternal kingdom. And then Paul says this, verse 51, he says, behold, I tell you a mystery, we'll not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now, we saw that last time. It really aligns perfectly with what we saw in 2 Corinthians 5.1. Paul's first priority was this, to be alive when Jesus came back. If the tent is torn down, then we have a home in the heavens, not built with hands. But Paul's first priority was this, I'd like to be alive when Jesus came back. Now, we know Paul was not, and neither is any of his audience. Paul died outside uh, the city of Rome, being, having his head cut off. So Paul got his wish to be with the Lord. The Lord was done with him on earth, moved him to his heavenly dwelling. But we have this confidence for the future. Not everyone's going to die. Paul says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We're not going to all die. And it appears that Paul hopes to be in that group. Uh, we will not all sleep. And we've seen this is simply euphemistic for dying. We're not going to all sleep. And Paul includes himself in the group with we. We will not all sleep. He's hoping that he'll be part of that group. And when he says uh, we, he just means we believers. And this is the reason for the if, if the earthly tent is, uh, which is our house is torn down because maybe it won't be. And some Christians will be alive on that day that the rapture occurs. And regardless, so Paul says, we will all be changed. We won't all sleep, but we will all be changed. So the idea of this is everyone will eventually be transformed. So according to Paul, some of us will go into the ground and, just like Paul did, as we saw last time, receive a temporary spiritual body as we wait to be changed at the moment we come out of the grave. Our bodies will remain in the grave waiting for that, that trumpet call and that, that body will come out. We looked at all of that last time. You can catch up with that if you'd like. Some of us won't see death and we'll be changed on the way up. Now, verse 52 helps with the timing of all of that. 
Paul says it will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And this takes on uh, really both options, those in the grave and those still alive. And we looked at a number of uh, supporting passages with all of this. Uh, Both can have great confidence, whether they're in the grave or they're still alive, in their future transformation, because it's going to be from corruptible to incorruptible, and it's going to be instantaneous. So Paul gives a clue as to when it's going to take place, and we saw that, and he says, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, so this transformation will occur to trumpet call. This is what Paul and every believer hopes to hear, and we looked at the meaning of those words uh, last time. Remember, the last trumpet doesn't mean the very last one forever and ever, amen. It just means the last of the last things. We know for sure that this trumpet Paul's talking about is going to be followed up by at least seven more, so it can't be the last one, but it is the last trumpet the one that's going to begin this first resurrection. And so it's a wonderful thing to think about. And we looked at the meaning of those things, so we'll move on. So 1 Corinthians 15.52 says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, so those still alive in Paul's audience, then and now, and we will be changed. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So Paul says, let me let you in on a little secret. It's never been revealed before. A whole generation of believers who will still be alive at the time of the resurrection in their natural bodies will be taken up in an instant and transformed into a glorious body without ever dying. Paul says, this is something you didn't know. You knew the resurrection was coming. We see this many times in the New Testament when Jesus talked to uh, uh, Mary and Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. And, and she said, yes, I, I believe we'll, we'll be resurrected at the last day. Paul says, no, uh, Jesus says, no, I am the resurrection. So it's a pretty sweet surprise for those who are Christ to understand that perhaps there's a whole generation of people uh, who will still be alive at the time of the resurrection. They're in that group and, and their natural bodies and will be taken up in an instant, transformed into a glorious body without ever dying. And that's a pretty great thing to think about. Now, verse 53 Paul begins to really sum up his encouragement for confidence in the future. It really is our parallel passage to the passage we're looking at. Verse 53 says this, For this this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. So it can apply in death, it can apply in the rapture, either with a temporary body or a resurrected one, and we have this wonderful confidence. So let's break down it it to its basic parts. What's going to happen is where we left off last time. In the shortest imaginable part of time, um, amount of time, he says this, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. That perishable, the adjective thartos, it's really uh, defined, you know, defiled, that's what's defiled. Uh, that's what Paul refers to in Second Corinthians 5 as the tent. It's the defiled part of us. It's made for the world. It's not made for the heavenlies. Paul's idea here is for the believer to think of their life now. It is clothed in a filthy set of clothes. It's a set of clothes that you could never take off on your own. It's a tent that you could never relocate from that tent to a heavenly dwelling without the Lord doing it. The real you is ready for heaven. It's clothed with corruption. You have a new you inside, still clothed with the body. And then this noun is implied for this adjective. It's talking about you. Uh, You're perishable. You're mortal. Uh, must put on immortality. Paul has been talking about a bodily resurrection from the beginning of the section. He's talking about the body now. And all that is corrupted will be transformed from death or from life because death just shows us an accelerated form of what's going on in life. You understand that, right? When we look in the grave, that's just an accelerated form of what's actually happening right now, okay? And so whether it's, it's not hard for the Lord to do either, to translate right out of the grave or to translate in this body of death we're currently in, okay? So he's going to transform. It's going to happen in an instant. 
And he says, that which is perishable must put on, uh, that's a, a Greek verb, enduo, instantaneously, what is filthy will be transformed into what is imperishable, aftharsia. So perishable is tharsos, aftharsia is out of, out of corruption, out of defilement. So we move from defilement out of defilement in an instant. No longer able to decay. The transformed suit around the real you will be the absolutely pure, no possibility of corruption. The real you is ready for heaven, and now you'll have a physical body that's also ready for eternity. And this mortal, the Greek adjective, natos, again, the noun's implied for the adjective, and it's the word body. The mortal means subject or liable to death. Mortal, here's this use of mortal, places the emphasis on the liability to death and the impartation of life at the time of the rapture. So, so Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, 53, this mortal must put on immortality. No more liability to death, just like we saw in Romans 8, 11. Not only that, but next week we're going to see death itself is going to die. And we're going to kind of look at that a little bit today too. Paul brings out some, something of the nature of the change, singling out the cessation of corruption, the liability of bodily decay, and mortality, which is a liability to death. So these things are totally incompatible with the life in the hereafter. They'll be transformed in an indivisible moment, this flash of light off an eye. A transformation is like clothing the real you with the right suit. Paul goes into that same thing at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You're going to see it repeated. Why? Because people always have questions about this. How will this occur? We saw earlier in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, we won't go back there again, it's like the planting and, and then the seed is transformed and it comes out. We saw all kinds of illustrations about that. Paul just comes back to it because this is the hope of the believer. This is the eternal hope of the believer. This is why we can endure whatever it is. This is why you can watch those in foreign countries do have very difficult lives, have very difficult endings of their lives, and not be discouraged. Why? Because they have taken their hope and set it on a future time. They know this is temporary. They know this is a tent. They weren't going to get, it was very unlikely they were going to get out of this alive and be transformed at the, at the rapture. So they understand that that great hope, which is will be clothed with immortality, has always been their hope. And there was never anything else. And Paul lives that way, doesn't he? I carried about on myself the sentence of death. Was he okay with that? He was. Why? Because he was ready to be with the Lord anyway. It didn't really matter. He knew this was temporary. He says, I'll stay because it's better to be with you, but I'd rather be with the Lord. So this transformation is like clothing the real you with the right suit. This is the longing of every believer. This is why Paul continues to repeat it because it's so important. It really, un, it really girds up everything that we do. It becomes the motivation for giving your life away. You're not going to save it anyway. See, We currently bear the image of the earthly, of Adam. We currently live in a tent, temporary dwelling place, 2 Corinthians 5. We currently wear the clothing of the mortal and the corruption, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 15. You know, but none of that will be true when this tent is torn down or after a moment of time on the day the trumpet sounds and the beginning of the first resurrection will have commenced. None of those things will be true. And the Holy Spirit carried Paul along to say that so that you could know this. See, Now, some things are obviously true here when the reality of verse 53 is accomplished. So look at verse 54 if you're following along in your copy. But when this perishable will have, on, will have put on imperishable, when this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And we're going to focus on those last six words because they are so marvelous. Death is swallowed up in victory. There's so much confidence wrapped up here for the future. On the day of transformation, death will be proclaimed as vanquished. 
And beloved, this is not a temporary escape from death, like those videos you watch of people, you know, walking across the street and then this huge semi-tire comes by, you know, where they were just there a second ago and they or they're standing looking at one train and they're standing in the tracks of another train and at the very last second they move out of the way. That's a temporary escape from death. That's not what we're talking about here. And, it, and we're also not, you know, a big rock rolling down the mountain, you know, and the car moves and it goes in between two cars and rolls off and they escaped. You know, that kind of thing is not it. You know, it, it's also not a temporary escape or a temporary suspension of death like Lazarus' experience. When Lazarus came forth, right, he'd already gone into the grave and Jesus called him back out. And there were some others in the New Testament who had that temporary suspension of death. It's not that. Now, Isaiah 25, 7 is where Paul appears to quote from. So we'll put it up there. Um, Isaiah 25, 7. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. Now, this is where Paul is drawing his information and in general, we saw when we studied this, that this is, is, this is the darkness of unbelief. This is the veil. When we looked at that earlier uh, in Second Corinthians chapter 4, chapter 3, there's a veil that covers uh, every unbeliever. There's no way we can remove it. We just give the gospel. The Lord can remove the veil of unbelief. But this t- time period in, in Isaiah 25, 7 appears to be at the glorious appearing of Christ. So at the close of the tribulation time, Christ comes back. Every eye sees him, even those who pierced him. All, that, all those things connected with, with the judgment that comes with his appearance. So at that point, he's going to swallow up the darkness of unbelief. Everyone, in other words, this. That doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved. It just means this. Everyone will know who God is, what Christ has done, and the penalty for rejecting the offer of salvation. That doesn't mean universal salvation, just universal understanding, okay? So no more arguing about who he is or what he's done. He's going to swallow up the veil that covers the eyes of every individual and every single person. And that's why it says in other passages, even those who pierced him. So did they believe he was the Messiah? No, of course not. They wouldn't have pierced him, right? So even those who pierced him, every eye will see him. They'll understand he's going to swallow up this veil of unbelief. But that's not the only thing he's going to swallow up. Paul quotes this. He will swallow up death for all time. And here's the deal. God will swallow up what's been swallowing up every person that's ever lived forever since the beginning of time. He's going to swallow it up. The authority of death will be removed forever. No more temporary dominion because it's temporary dominion. And for the redeemed, eternal life. And for the unredeemed, an eternal body that can never die and be relieved of the torment that they'll be in. He's going to swallow up death. There's no more possibility of dying. Earlier in the passage, the prophet was carried along to say this in Isaiah 12. He says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. For you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. So when Paul says then in verse 54, he says, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. In other words, what God had planned long since and has revealed to his servant, the prophet, he will certainly fulfill. See, Isaiah got to see this. He didn't understand exactly what time period it would occur. Paul is able to clarify that because the Lord has given him more revelation. He's, under, he's able to understand how it's all going to apply. But the Lord planned this long ago. And then he did exactly, and he's going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. Swallowed up in victory points to the complete defeat and destruction of death. Death is swallowed up in victory. It's to describe as a totally overcome. 
It has disappeared because it was drank down by Christ on the cross. Death's bell tolled already. It tolled on Resurrection Sunday, didn't it? And as C.S. Lewis said, then everything started working backwards at that point. What a marvelous thing to think about. When Christ came out of the grave, death's bell tolled. It rang out as the end of the dominion of death. Christ proved that it had no authority over him. And because I live, you will what? Live also. See? And we're going to celebrate in just a couple of weeks this death's bell tolling. But what a marvelous thing to think about, see? But in this future day, so the, the bell tolled for death already. It's already on notice. But this future day, death is put on display as vanquished. The glorious appearing of Christ, it's going to be the end of death. Believers coming out of the grave being transformed. Believers being transformed in life. This is the proof. So when the transformation comes, the, tri- the triumph can be proclaimed. Now, how does that statement affect you right now? And, you know, I just said that, and death's bell tolled. And now, you know, you're thinking about perhaps, as we've been talking about for a couple of weeks, death. Do you fear it? See? It's a hard conversation to have, isn't it? One I hope you're having with your children from time to time. Do you fear that? Because even if we don't fear death as a believer, there's a, there's a sense in which it still has temporary authority, right? Right now. I mean, it's bell tolled at the resurrection, but there's some temporary authority it still has. And we're looking forward to that time when it no longer has authority. You know, it, it breaks long marriages. It takes away people who are needed. You know, it lays claim to the very young. It lays claim to the very old. It, it can hit us with an almost unbearable blow. And although for the believer we see in 2 Corinthians 5.8, we are of good courage, I say, Paul has to say it twice, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. What's that mean? Paul, I, Paul says, I, I don't mind dying. I'm okay with it. See, it has to, have some, has to have some shoe leather. See, it can't be just some doctrine that we talk about kind of disconnected from our own life because it changes how we live, see. In a temporary body, see, we're of good courage because we're waiting for the resurrection, as we saw a few weeks ago. But for the unbeliever, beloved, for the unbeliever, death comes and steals away souls to hell. See, Physical death seals the fate. Death is still an enemy, even though we who are Christians have no fear. But there's coming a time when the resurrection happens. And then we can shout, you know, Isaiah 25, 7, he'll swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil, which is stretched over all nations, he'll swallow up death for all time. We can shout that with all the nations of the redeemed, right? After this time, there's never going to be a time, there's never going to be a time ever again where death will ever have any dominion over mankind, ever. That's the reality we, we don't understand how to comprehend, I don't think. There's never going to be a time where death will ever have dominion over mankind forever. I mean, it kind of marks us, doesn't it? I mean, the loss of, of dear ones to us, that marks us. Whether it was a, you know, an unborn child or, or a grandparent or whatever, that, it marks us, but it'll never mark us again. It will never be the, 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 the only one we'll remember, I think, with joy is Christ's death and his resurrection because those who were redeemed of, of our family will be with them forever. And as a footnote, a symbol of it, exciting part to think about, you know, the defeat of death doesn't just stop death from doing any further damage, you know, like, um, you know, putting sandbags in place during a flood where everything was ruined already and still ruined, but at least no further damage can be done. It's not that, okay? It's, um, for the believer, 
everything that was ever ruined by death is reversed. I mean, just try to capture this in your mind because I want you to live in this, in this um, confidence where good courage, everything that was ever ruined by death is re- reversed. What do I mean? Well, you know, all the apparent victories of death are turned into defeats. They were taken, but now they're not taken anymore, are they? Now they're with you. It, that's a defeat because we were separated, but we're, we're no longer separated, are we? And all the defeats caused by death on those who are Christ are turned into victories forevermore. See? Everything that was missed, catch this, okay? Everything that was missed and broken and taken away and unbearable become the sweetest of victories. And all of eternity is before us to celebrate them and catch up and finish and have more and everything that comes to our minds at the time of loss, right? We lose somebody who's dear to us, and there's so much more we wanted to have, right? We miss them. I mean, there was a place occupied by them, and they were marvelous, and we love that, and now we don't have that, and that place is not occupied here anymore. But that, that defeat, that temporary dominion, is turned into a victory. Why? Because as a believer, you will catch up with them, and forever you'll have all that opportunity to catch up and rejoice and fix everything and, and all the stuff that you wanted to say and do and everything that come to your mind at the time of loss, that all begins to be the reality. But on the other side, what a terrible thing to think about as an unbeliever now, as an unbeliever in the tribulation and later to be born during the millennial reign of Christ and to reject him because death has been put to death and eventually that will apply to you and all will be resurrected with a body that can no longer die and all the unredeemed will live in a body for eternity in torment. Everybody gets what they want. Not everybody likes what they get. You want an eternity without the Lord? You will get it along with the absence of everything that's common grace here in heaven, okay? So you think about the ACD song, you know, I'm on the highway to hell and I'm at a party with my friends, or they're all going to be there too. Guess what? Friendship and love and family and fellowship and devotion and all the joy that comes, that's common grace poured out in every single person who's ever lived, that's absent. You don't get any of the stuff that the Lord pours on those in common grace now and gives to those he loves. You get what you want. Separation from the Lord forever for eternity in torment. So the joy that is in the heart of the believer, thinking of the reuniting and the catching up and and the repairing and the fulfilling and all the things that are going to be part of that marvelous eternity, the long day, that's absent from those who are unredeemed. You go to the grave now, you're You're set. Your eternity is set. You're waiting for the great white throne judgment and all your deeds will be opened up and everything you've ever said and all you've done and all the, you have this idea that you've been a pretty good person and and your good deeds outweigh your bad. The Lord will clear that up for you pretty quickly and then find that your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, obviously. So all that sin that you did and everything that you said and all, you're all guilty. You'll be guilty of all of that and you will serve forever because you rejected In in torment, because you rejected the payment that came through God's Son. Don't kid yourself. It's not going to be okay. For the believer, the words really quoted by Paul in Isaiah 25.8, he will swallow up death for all time, has such a wonder about it. It causes Paul really to sneer at death in the next verse. Look there, if you would, in verse 55. He says this. Death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now, It's the form of the noun 
thanatos or, or death in both sentences. The word grave isn't in the original. You may have grave where it's your sting. That's not in the original. It is, though, in the passage in Hosea that Paul is quoting. In Hosea, it says this. Um, the Lord is speaking through the prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. It had been led into idolatry, and although the Lord has the power to do these things, he indicates he's not going to do them on behalf of an idolatrous people. So he says this. This is Paul, where Paul is drawing this. He says to the northern kingdom who is in idolatry and in unbelief, he says, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? And that word Sheol is used there to represent the grave. Shall I ransom them from the power of the grave? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where's your sting? So in other words, if the Lord desired to, he could take away the power of the grave and of death. But instead, his people would be consumed by both. So he says, compassion will be hidden from my sight. And idolatrous people that had rejected him, that had rejected his offer of salvation, had followed false gods. He said, listen, I could take away the power of death, but I'm not going to. Why? Because you don't believe that I can and you don't follow me and you don't worship me. So compassion will be hidden from my sight. And in the future, at the beginning of the first resurrection, at the transformation, death will have no victory, and every victory that it had temporarily will be reversed for the believer. And then he ridicules death again and says, where's your sting? And sting is a noun, kentron. It really refers to the fang of a snake uh, or the stinger of an insect, like a bee or a scorpion or something like that, which causes a lot of pain, perhaps leads to death. That's the reference with the word. But in the future, at the beginning of this first resurrection for the redeemed, at the transformation, the stinger of death has been removed. Why? And again, as a footnote, the stinger was really plunged into whom? Christ, right. At the cross, he took the stinger of death, didn't he? He submitted to the apparent victory of death at the cross. So death has no more sting. It doesn't have any victory because he rose from the dead. Both were powerless over him. So resurrection confidence principle number seven, if you're keeping track, death was a malicious adversary, torturing people and conquering people. But Christ has drawn its sting and conquered it, and it is powerless and harmless to those who are in him. Now, that's a marvelous thing to think about. Now, Paul wants to make sure that the church understands this ridicule that Paul levels at death. It helps you understand and capture in your mind, while Paul could say, I'd rather be with the Lord. I'm not worried about this whole thing called death. I don't sweat this at all. In fact, it'd be really better for me to be with him, but it's better for me to be with you because it helps the church. But to be honest, I'd, I'd like to be gone now, Paul says. So on top of all the other wonderful principles that Paul has given the church that make him so confident in the resurrection of Christ and his power to save, he explains this simple sentence. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, the sting of death is sin. Now, you wouldn't know this by watching Hollywood, okay? You wouldn't know it by watching many in Washington. But moral issues, sin issues are the serious issues, okay? The same God who set up the physical laws of the universe and put them into place also set up the moral laws of the universe, okay? And if you vi- and it just seems so absurd to me that you would believe in the physical laws of the universe. I mean, regardless of what you might think, if you jump out of a plane without a parachute, gravity is going to take over and you're going to meet your death in just a few minutes, regardless of what you may believe about it, Okay? And the same God who made the physical laws of the universe, and people will believe and, and create bridges and cars and chairs and whatever to, to shield us from those laws so that we can make people safe and understand how they work so we can build things that will, that will work, all that kind of stuff. So you understand, the God who made these physical laws, they believe that, and yet they reject the whole moral law. See? Seems just really absurd to me, but if, 
Here's the deal. If you violate the moral law of the universe, there are consequences. Just as if you violated the physical laws of the universe, there'd be consequences. Now, you wouldn't know that by watching Hollywood. It celebrates every possible deviant behavior and, and wants you to not only accept it, but to affirm it, okay? So you, you wouldn't know that moral issues and sin issues are the serious issues. The sting of death is sin, okay? That thing is sin, okay? And if you think about it, it's not death itself that's harmful. It's the sting of death that's harmful, Death or simply moving out of this life and into the immediate presence of the Lord is considered gain, not loss, for the believer, according to Paul in Philippians 1, 21 and 23. See? So it's not the death that's the problem. It's the sting of death that's the problem. See, Where sin is pardoned, death has no sting. See, But it's quite another matter where sin has not been dealt with. Again, if you remain in your sin, if you're sitting here as a non-believer, then your sin is a sting that's going to result in your permanent death. You understand? Christ took the stinger of death for you, but if you haven't incorporated by faith that payment, then you that stinger of death remains in you. All of your sin, that is the moral issues, the sin issues, the things that you do in your life and have done all your life, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. In other words, you know, where sin is pardoned, death has no sting. Death is a virulent antagonist. The sting is not in death, it's in sin. And sin, or the sting, has an unexpected ally, a source of power, and that's the law. So Paul says, what's that mean? Well, we'll look at Romans 7.1, and we'll, then we'll just explain it. Romans 7.1, Paul, this is a review for those who were with us for a Roman study, but it's been many years ago, so I'll just bring it up just briefly. At Romans chapter 7, verse 9, Paul says this, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came... Sin became alive and I died. In other words, when I was oblivious of the fact that there was a commandment that said, don't covet, then I, it was no big deal, right? I didn't know I did anything wrong. I mean, I was just living my life. You know, my physical body was perfectly in line with the old me, and they did what they wanted to do, and I, it was no big deal. I didn't think about it, see? But then when the law came, all of a sudden it illustrated what I was doing wrong, see? That's wrong to do. And, and this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death, through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Here's the deal. Even though the law was to result in life to those who keep it, no one was able to keep it. It shows sin to be utterly sinful, see? But it's quite unable to bring people to salvation. So someone had to come and keep it. And Romans 10, 4 tells us who? For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. So Christ is the end of the law. He's the one who came and kept the law. See, So God's law sets up a standard we ought to reach and never do. So according to Paul, it becomes sin's stronghold. And it shows us to be sinners and it condemns us, all of us. So resurrection confidence principle number eight is this. Wherever there is sin, death can give a fatal blow. See, But the law has made sin clear. So we know that that's the truth. 
But wherever sin has been paid for, forgiven and removed, death is no longer has a sting. See? Just simplifies the gospel that Christ has gone to his grave and, and rose, but he bore in his body on the cross our sin. See, he took the plunger of sin, the stinger, and now we are no longer guilty of it. We receive the righteousness of Christ, and he took on our wickedness, you see? And so we say on the behalf of a believer, there is no sting in death. That's why Paul can ridicule death. Why? Because the sting of death is sin, and sin is the case and sin has been removed from the from the believer. So all death can do is kind of buzz around and scare you a little bit. And for the reasons we mentioned before, kind of like in the springtime when all the bees are buzzing around your back porch and come, one comes close to your ear and you, you jump, right? But if you knew it didn't have any stinger, would you be worried about it? Probably not. I mean, you don't jump when a butterfly flies around your ear, right? And so that's the idea, Paul says. Listen, the stinger of death has been removed But death can buzz around, scare you a little bit, but it can't sting you because the sting of death is sin. And if you have repented and placed your trust in Jesus, then Jesus bore all your sin and settled the debt for all of it and forgave it. He already took the sting. And so Romans 7, 22 through 8, 1, it really comes alive when we understand Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 56. He says this, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. The real me, the redeemed me, sees the law of God and desires to obey it. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Where's sin, sin waging war right now? See? Is it in the, in, the, in the new you? No. In his flesh. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And that is precisely the day we're talking about in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and following, the transformation day. Who's going to set me free from the body of death? See? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... On the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. And then this marvelous reminder that in spite of the constant battle being waged in this corrupted flesh, Jesus has already satisfied the law for all who believe. And he's taken the victory away from death, and he's taken the sting out of death. And so the Holy Spirit can categorically tell us this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Regardless of your day-to-day experience, in this corrupted flesh where on a regular basis you do things that are not pleasing to the Lord, there's another law waging in your mind. What is it? The one that you know Christ has given and you desire to obey it. And guess what? Your faith in Christ has taken the sting of sin away and now there's no longer any danger. And so Paul can categorically say, therefore there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the sting of death was taken out and plunged into Christ who went to his grave and rose victorious. And now you can too. You have his righteousness on you. You see? So you can say, I'd rather be with the Lord. It's far better. Why? Because there's no sting in death, is there? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The moral issues you committed, all of that stuff, that was this barb of sin that's going to kill you, right? And the law pointed it out and made it clear. So it's not even subjective. Well, that wasn't that bad. No, it was bad. It disobeyed God's law. Maybe even one of his top ten. It was bad, regardless of what you think about it. And Christ has taken it into himself. And then rose victorious over it. So there's no sin against your account. God has forgotten it. He's buried it in the seas. He's removed it as far as the east is from the west. So for the believer, there's no sin. There's no sting, see. 
But just as we noticed in Romans 7, it doesn't mean you don't commit sins as a believer. It simply means that they're already covered. It means they're forgiven and that they're paid for. Don't live there, beloved, okay? Don't live in the temporary defeat of the fleshly body and your, your willingness to submit to a, sla- to a master you no longer answer to. You don't have to live there. That's not the real you, okay? Understand that as long as you're in this flesh, it's going to have appetites and you're going to struggle against it. And I throw my hat in the ring with everybody who's in an active battle against sin. Listen, you think I'm just, you know, I'm living my life each week and I'm not doing anything wrong. Well, I would just say you need to read your Bible, okay? Because you're not even aware of what's going on and they're so camouflaged in your life, you're just like missing them completely. There's an active battle going on, a regular battle for your mind and, 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 and the culture just throws stuff up constantly and you have to do a battle with that, right? doesn't mean you don't commit acts of sin as a Christian. It just means they're already covered, they're already forgiven, they're already paid for. Death already scored what it thought was a permanent victory for your sin. And who did it kill? It killed Christ. And no doubt Satan was thinking about all the others that would be killed, wasn't he? But Christ was raised and he conquered the grave. So that reversed death for everyone who believes. And it's all done, you see. It's all complete. And that's important to know if you're not a believer because the same principles that work in you. Keep in mind, if you're not a believer, there's sin in your life, then you've given death the right to sting you with a fatal blow. And that is your future. Unmitigated by Christ's offer of salvation, you will be stung with a fatal blow. So whether you believe it or not, whether you've read it or not, the law of God is the standard that reveals the sin, and the sin is the thing that gives death its sting. And just in case you're thinking, you know, you haven't been that bad, and and you're thinking that you're no criminal, the way the smallest sin gives sting to death, the, the most, if you will, seemingly inconsequential sin that's unforgiven, unaccounted for, unrepented of in the life of an unbeliever is enough to cause a fatal blow, regardless of what you think about it, how, how high you may rank it, whatever it is, however inconsequential you think it is, it's still a sin that will give a fatal blow, okay? But the promise to the believer is that the sting of death is gone and death itself is swallowed up forever for the one who places their trust in the resurrected one. And that's an important point to ponder and, and to praise the Lord for, right? I mean, and so Paul does just that. So in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty five, he praises the Lord. He says, he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And he answers the same way of praise in verse 57. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of death having a victory, instead of death having a sting, God in his grace gives it to us through Jesus and gives us that form of the uh, Greek verb didomi, it's present active participle. So the resurrection confidence principle nine is this. Again, for the believer, there's no sin reckoned to your account, so death has no sting. But in particular, here it is, we know that this victory will be on display at the resurrection, but there's a sense, beloved, there's a sense in which we are already participating in the victory now, right? Every time you have victory over a sin that used to dominate you, and every time you are able to resist the evil one and he flees from you, and every time you're able to see those, those marks of, of sanctification beginning to occur in your life as the Holy Spirit goes to work through the Word of God and weeds out those hidden things and weeds out those, those uh, camouflage things you used to do and, and starts to begin to change your first responses to one another, see? As, as you see that happening, you're celebrating that victory of sin, uh, that death has no power over you and sin has no power over you anymore. Yes, it's still a struggle, but you see incremental victories, don't you? But someday, someday, beloved, in the future, there's going to be this marvelous victory where you are connected to this forever, see? He's replaced the reign of sin with that of grace, see? And Paul really illustrates that present, you know, that present victory principle in Romans 5.21. He says, as sin reigned in death... Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. The righteousness that's available to us through grace is a daily example of the victory Christ had over sin and its sting. Okay? You catch that? The righteousness that's available to us through grace is a daily example of the victory Christ had over sin and its sting. So in light of all of this, how does Paul want the church to respond? And here's where we're going to stop right now. Okay? Verse 58, he says this. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So be steadfast. That's the verb genesthe. And the adjective hedraos, verb is present, middle, imperative. Steadfast is, this is a derivative of the word sit. So this is the command from Paul to sit here. Sit right here. Be right in this place. He wants the church to be able to, to stand right on this spot. The matter is settled. Be steadfast. Don't be disturbed. Stay right here. Regardless of uh, the struggle that you have on a daily basis, stand right here. Okay? Stand right here. Be immovable. Kenetoi is, is from the verb where you get our word kinetic. So here it is with this negative particle. So it just means be without movement. Stand here. Don't waver back and forth. That really underlines the previous thought. The Corinthians were prone to fickleness. They're, they're shifting without reason from one position to another. They're always going back and forth. He's addressing this tendency where this passage they had this idea that the dead don't rise. Paul says, listen, get a firm grip on the truth of the resurrection on God's final plan for all people, for all things, and you'll not be so readily shaken. You're not going to go back and forth again. Is this going to happen? Should I be afraid of death? Am I, am I really secure in my salvation? You know, what's going to happen if I die? Am I, am I, am I going to be okay? See? And then this, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Present active form of parasuo should be the standard existence of the believer who has had this assurance. See, overflowing, overabounding in the work of the kingdom. Overflowing or something in large or wonderful measure. Uh, you know, a flower going from a bud to full bloom is described as parasuo. There should be nothing, nothing cramped and narrow and restricted about Christians experiencing the work of the kingdom. See? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always just giving yourself completely to it, see? In full bloom, doing exactly what you were created to do. Give yourself fully to the work of the ministry, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Understand the implication of this truth, beloved, okay? Understand the implication of this truth. It's marvelous. We're out of time, so let's, um, let's close with, so... Uh, these marvelous things in our mind here as we think about these last few few things we talked about. Philippians 5, 9, or 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, also, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. You know, when we think about being steadfast, being immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. You know, and then Paul says basically the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Because we understand this, because we understand this truth, we understand uh, the confidence we have for the future. Listen, we have as our ambition, whether to be absent or at home, to be pleasing to him. Just give yourself over to the work of the ministry. Do the things that the Lord has, has planned for you to do. You live in this victory, incorporated into your life. Let it make its way out in the way that you live. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. And we're going to have, uh, have a presentation today, which I'm look, so looking forward to. If you bow with me, that'd be uh, wonderful as we seek the Lord together in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for a marvelous time in the word. We thank you for an opportunity to... Uh, to look at the confidence that we can have in the future as Paul begins in 2 Corinthians 5 and works his way through uh, multiple confidences that he has and he has, he has understood from the Word of God that help him to say the things that he says with, with a clear conscience.
to, to be thoroughly happy with being at home with the Lord and to prefer that rather. He must know something and have realized something that most of us have completely forgotten or missed because we live our lives as if this is the only one we're going to have and we grasp onto things around us as if this is what we're going to accumulate. And he t- reminds us over and over again, this is temporary, this is a tent, this is corruption, and you're going to be changed. And the sting of death has been taken away. It's been put in Christ and he, he conquered it. And there's no sting of death. There's no moral issue. There's no sin issue for the believer that will ever bring him down to the grave. He is delivered forever. If you sit here today and that's not your experience, you don't understand this and, and you're concerned now as you should be. You're concerned that, that the moral issues, the, the moral laws of this universe that you have regularly disobeyed and you thought nothing of it, if you think that it's going to be okay, you are seriously mistaken. Christ's victory over sin and death brings great confidence. We're partners with this great God who's going to share the fruit of his victory with us, but you, as you remain in your sin, you will experience forever in a body that will never perish payment for your sin and for the rejection of Christ's payment on the cross for you. Right now, you can repent of your sin, confess that what you've done is wrong, and ask the Lord to save you, and he will graciously save you. It's not his will that any perish, but all come to the knowledge of salvation. He's not vindictive. He's patient toward you. Confess that you've sinned. Desire to turn from that. It's called repentance. You want to turn from that sin. Ask the Lord to save you. He says that he will place his Holy Spirit in you. You will then have the power that the Lord has intended for you to have to begin to walk in a way he wants you to walk. But most importantly, he's taken your sin, the debt of your sin, the penalty, and placed it on Christ, and he's given Christ's righteousness to you. Confess and repent. If you've done that today before we leave, right in the chair in front of you, there's a way to respond and tell us you did that. Don't leave today without doing that. If you prayed and, and you... You came to know Christ as your Savior today. And he's forgiven your sin. Please tell us. There's a place there that you can fill out that'll tell us just that. For the rest of us, Father, because we have as our ambition, whether to be at home or absent, to be pleasing to you, how do you want us to respond to that? Well, you want us to have the ministry of reconciliation. Father, help us to seek out those who are lost. That's why you sit your son here. We come to seek and save those who are lost. We just follow in his, his example. This is our purpose. We have this ministry, 2 Corinthians 4.1, ministry of the gospel. Therefore, we don't lose hope. It's the thing we can do. And you don't count our sin against us, but we share the glory that you have given to Christ. And all the labor that we have for the kingdom, you've told us it's not in vain. Help us not to be consumed with holding on to this temporary life, but committed to use this temporary life for the kingdom. And as we saw when we started, we are complete and thoroughly equipped for all this good work. So, Lord, I pray that as we spend time in the word, you'll help us to uh, give wings to that understanding and begin to do the things you've called us to do. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said,